Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, murder, and homophobia that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Frank Amador braced himself as he exited the courtroom. Within moments, reporters swarmed him, shoving microphones in his face and shouting questions. Frank cocked his head to the side to avoid looking down the barrel of the cameras and tried to smile politely. He wasn't one to crack under pressure, and right now, for his brother's sake, he had to keep his composure. Just like in the courtroom, giving into his emotions would only make the situation worse. Frank kept his expression even as he answered question after question after question. Yes, of course, he was still committed to getting justice for Scott. No, he wasn't angry when he listened to his brother's killer testify. But on behalf of his family, he had to be honest. The defense's case was a bunch of bull. He kept his statements short and sweet, though it didn't seem to matter either way. There was no end to the curiosity. Every day he had to relive his brother's violent death in court, then relive it again for the media until he could finally go home and grieve. Still, he pushed through it all because he hoped in the end, Scott would be at peace. Frank wasn't naive enough to be confident, but he did have faith. If he played his small role, maybe the jury would deliver the verdict he believed was just. Maybe eventually he would get the result he wanted so desperately. That small thing might make things feel all right again, at least for a moment. But he didn't get what he wanted. No one did. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last week, we covered the tragic tale of Scott Amador and Jonathan Schmitz. In 1995, Scott confessed his secret crush on John during a taping of The Jenny Jones Show. John was terrified audiences would think he was gay and left the episode furious. Three days later, in an act of homophobic revenge, he killed his former friend. This week, we'll talk about the sensationalized criminal and civil trials that followed Scott's murder. Ravenous, the media kept the case on air every step of the way as it evolved from daytime TV talk shows to the nightly news. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. 
the impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. On the morning of March 9th, 1995, 24-year-old Jonathan Schmitz found a tongue-in-cheek note outside his apartment door. It came from his friend, Scott Amador. Three days earlier, John was embarrassed when Scott told the audience of The Jenny Jones Show that he had romantic feelings for John. John returned home to Michigan, worried that TV viewers would assume he was gay. Ever since the taping, he'd stood over what he felt was a humiliating insult. And now, for whatever reason, the provocative note became his breaking point. John was infuriated that Scott saw the whole thing as a joke. Or maybe he was simply waiting for any excuse to get violent. Either way, John took his revenge. After stumbling upon the note, John bought a gun, headed over to Scott's mobile home outside of Lake Orion, Michigan, and shot him twice in the chest. By the time the smoke cleared, John had already hopped in his car and sped out of the neighborhood in a panic. It's not clear if he really had a plan. Scott's roommate, Gary Brady, saw the shooting firsthand, but John didn't try to harm him. There was no point in trying to get rid of witnesses. He'd done everything in broad daylight. Earlier that morning, John withdrew $300 from an ATM, which he might have intended to use to escape. But once he was on the road, he must have realized $300 wouldn't be enough to get away with murder. After a few minutes of hectic driving, he pulled into a gas station parking lot to gather his spiraling nerves. It didn't take long for John to come to grips with his situation. He was never going to get away clean. Running would only make things worse. After some thought, he decided his only chance was to turn himself in. If he cooperated, maybe he could work something out. Hands trembling from fear and adrenaline, John walked to a nearby payphone and dialed 911. His voice started out even, but quickly started to shake. John told the dispatcher he'd shot Scott Amador because Scott had played a, quote, mean joke on him. He claimed it was all because Scott took him on Jenny Jones. After John's confession, police took him into custody, and from there, the news traveled fast. Scott's brother, Frank Amador, was one of the first to hear about the murder. Because he lived in the same town as Scott, he arrived at the crime scene soon after the police. But already, word had gotten around. A neighbor told reporters she heard the shooting was about Scott's appearance on Jenny Jones. Officers advised Frank to get a good lawyer, warning him the story would become a media circus. They were absolutely right. From the beginning, TV cameras covered almost every second of the story. Not only was John's motive unusual, but the media itself was directly involved in the crime. Suddenly, journalists and talk shows got to be major characters in a murder, not just the spectators, and they took full advantage of their new roles. But all the media coverage may have had a drastic impact on the jury well before the trial. Before I continue with their psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. 
A psychological study conducted in 1994, just a year before the shooting, determined that pretrial media coverage can unconsciously shape the opinions of jurors. In their paper, researchers James Ogloff and Neil Vidmar laid out some damning facts about mass media. Serious crimes or those with a shocking or salacious angle receive the most airtime, and in general, journalists prioritize grisly details and incriminating information about suspects. This can benefit the prosecution since the discovery of contradictory evidence isn't usually covered as widely. However, the study also determined that those most affected by pretrial coverage were often completely unaware of their bias. Study participants who were exposed to this kind of media consistently recommended more severe punishments than those who weren't. Overall, the research found people tend to be overconfident that they haven't been influenced by outside factors. In general, more coverage of a crime often makes it more likely that defendants are found guilty, but it can go either way. No matter which way the media influenced the jurors' opinions in John and Scott's case, it probably had some effect. And it's also likely that none of the jurors or reporters even realized they were being swayed. That point is especially important in this case. Because the cameras weren't just outside the courthouse and reporters weren't just hounding the Amadors and Schmitzes on the street. Court TV, a channel dedicated in part to gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage of salacious trials, had cameras rolling live inside the courtroom. It wasn't as sensational as the typical daytime talk shows, but it still employed reporters and TV hosts who were constantly hovering, hoping to land a surprise interview. The pressure was on for everyone involved. Frank Amador later admitted that he worried whether the family had fallen into the media's, quote, trap. He, along with members of the Schmitz family, thought they needed to go along with the spectacle. It felt like talking to journalists was a necessary step in finding justice, and it was only natural to want to publicly defend themselves, especially during such a contentious trial. Though whether the media coverage was helping or harming the case was debatable. All the talk may have only added fuel to the fire. Depending on its angle, each show played up certain aspects of the lurid crime. Some may have even exaggerated to create big stories out of every little twist and turn. In a sense, the families involved got an extended taste of what every guest on The Jenny Jones Show endured. Their dirty laundry was broadcast to the world to satisfy the public's morbid fascination. Over the following weeks and months, rumors and accusations spread like wildfire. Donna Riley, who was on The Jenny Jones Show with Scott and John, was swept up in the drama as well. Though she didn't speak to the media much herself, it was clear she was shocked and confused by the murder. She was close friends with both men and had no idea John was capable of that kind of violence. She thought the Jenny Jones taping would be a fun, once-in-a-lifetime experience. Instead, it was a horror story that never seemed to end. Meanwhile, new programs hosted in-depth discussions about John and Scott's sexuality, helmed by people who had never met either of them. Many publicly speculated that John was closeted, his parents were scrutinized and ridiculed. 
Scott's family also had to endure invasive interrogations about his private life. Depending on the day, shows painted both men as drug addicts or sexual deviants. Neither was true. It was exactly the kind of speculation John Schmitz claimed he feared when he killed Scott Amador. And ironically, he made his own nightmare come true. Thanks to John's own ego and intolerance, his minor talk show appearance became the defining event of his life. He'd be haunted by his actions forever. With all the evidence against him, there was no real debate about John's culpability going into the proceedings on October 14, 1996. But his defense team did hope to score a less serious conviction, such as second-degree murder. That would mean John was guilty of intentionally killing Scott, but had not planned his crime beforehand. To that end, they deployed a legal strategy known as the gay panic defense. The exact logic, or lack thereof, in these arguments has varied over the years. Sometimes defendants claim they were provoked to violence by unwanted sexual advances from a member of the same gender. Sometimes they say these advances were physically threatening and they only acted in self-defense. Still others say they completely saw red or blacked out and had no memory of committing the crime at all. Essentially, John's attorneys argued he was put in a state of temporary insanity as a result of being humiliated by Scott's on-air confession. The murder, according to them, wasn't really premeditated. John wasn't thinking clearly at the time. The explanation wasn't intended to entirely excuse the crime, but instead lessen John's punishment. Over the years, this strategy has been used in many criminal cases, but it is problematic and many scholars argue it should not be allowed in a court of law. Legal professor Cynthia Lee has identified several troubling aspects of the gay panic defense. She wrote that the strategy reinforces negative stereotypes about gay men by portraying them as aggressive sexual predators. It also, quote, seeks to capitalize on unconscious bias in favor of heterosexuality. It would be hard to imagine a gay man successfully defending himself for the murder of a woman by claiming he was afraid for his safety after she asked him out. Yet this same idea has repeatedly been used to justify or minimize the murders of queer men. To establish that John was particularly vulnerable to temporary insanity, the defense brought in psychologists to discuss his mental state during the attack. Experts told the jury John had previously been diagnosed with manic depression. About a year before the shooting, he attended several counseling sessions with psychiatrist, Dr. Habib Vasiri. Dr. Vasiri stated John suffered from depression, had issues with drug dependency, and endured a traumatic, abusive childhood. He testified that he even asked John to be hospitalized for some time. But John only attended six appointments with Dr. Vasiri before he stopped showing up. Though John was on antipsychotic medication for a short period, he didn't agree to be hospitalized, and he wasn't taking any medication when he killed Scott. Another psychiatrist, Dr. Carol Lieberman, told the media she believed John's appearance on Jenny Jones worsened his existing issues with his body image and alcohol. She said the show had, quote, caused him to begin a descent into madness and self-destruction until he exploded. 
he did not want to be alive when the show aired. John himself told his psychiatrist he had attempted suicide before. His father confirmed it, and the depression wasn't his only medical issue. He'd also been diagnosed with Graves' disease, an immune disorder that can affect a patient's mood. According to the Mayo Clinic, Graves' disease can cause fatigue, anxiety, and irritability. John's attorneys argued this toxic combination of psychological issues caused him to irrationally erupt in anger after Scott's TV confession. It may have seemed like a long shot, but it was nothing compared to what was coming. As the trial proceeded, the defense was gutsy enough to try and portray John as the victim. Coming up, the jury reaches a verdict, but the case is far from closed. Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most nefarious groups. Some preach extreme religious practices, others warn of impending doom, and then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical. Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies, we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organizations the world may or may not have known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial or collegiate kind attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows, others operate in plain sight, all are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. On October 14, 1996, 25-year-old Jonathan Schmitz went to trial for the murder of Scott Amador. John's lawyers deployed the gay panic defense to argue he wasn't in a stable state of mind during the attack. They pointed to a series of existing mental health conditions to claim John was temporarily insane when he committed the murder. But that was only the beginning. The defense also speculated that when John shot Scott twice with the shotgun, he thought he was acting in self-defense. To demonstrate this, they relied on testimony from Scott's roommate, Gary Brady, who witnessed the shooting firsthand. Gary testified that when John came up the driveway, brandishing a shotgun, Scott retreated inside their trailer. He tried to close the door, but John forced his way inside. Then Scott backed up and grabbed the closest thing he could, a wicker chair, to defend himself. According to Gary, the move appeared to be intended as self-defense. Scott held the chair like a shield. But the defense theorized that John saw this as an act of aggression. They claimed John was only carrying the gun and not pointing it at Scott up until that point. When Scott grabbed the chair, John thought Scott was going to attack him and reacted instinctively by firing the shotgun. In short, they claimed John was the one defending himself, not Scott. It was far from an airtight argument and not a version Gary agreed with, but it didn't need to be perfect. It was simply intended to introduce some measure of doubt about what happened that day. 
The prosecution's response to the gay panic defense was largely dismissive. It was clear that John was depressed and had a strained relationship with his homophobic abusive father. But in their view, that didn't excuse the killing. As the attorneys pointed out, a lot of people suffer from depression and a lot of people receive unsolicited sexual advances. The vast majority of those don't go on to murder their friends as revenge. It was also important to emphasize that the murder happened three full days after the Jenny Jones taping. Some found it difficult to believe John didn't plan the attack. While he didn't purchase the shotgun until the day of the crime, the three-day lag made it hard to argue he'd reacted only in the heat of the moment. Following the closing arguments, the jury deliberated for a few days. There was no question that John would be found guilty of something, but the possible sentences varied widely. First-degree murder carried a mandatory life sentence, but John could have been convicted of second-degree murder or even possibly of death resulting from discharging a weapon within city limits. The last charge was a misdemeanor and only carried a sentence of two years in prison. In the end, the jury convicted Jonathan Schmitz of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to 25 to 50 years in prison. The deciding factor for the jury appeared to be John himself. His clean-cut, non-threatening appearance won them over. One of the jurors later told Larry King that she wouldn't mind having a son like John, a murderer. According to Scott's brother, Frank, the conviction didn't please either the Amadors or the Schmitzes. Though they disagreed about the extent, both families pinned at least some of the blame for the murder on The Jenny Jones Show. The Amador saw it as a catalyst and the Schmitzes saw it as the entire cause of John's mental breakdown. After the criminal trial, neither family felt as if justice had been served. That was a popular opinion, especially on the airwaves. Since there was no real debate that Jonathan Schmitz had killed Scott Amador, reporters shifted the focus to the Jenny Jones show early on. It was a compelling argument, full of drama to infuriate and captivate their viewers. The public fiercely debated whether the producers of the show bore any part of the blame. Had daytime talk shows gone too far? In Frank Amador's opinion, at least, the Jenny Jones show was absolutely culpable. First and foremost, he blamed John for the shooting, but he also believed the show was deliberately designed to manipulate, humiliate, and shame its participants for entertainment. Frank felt it was utterly irresponsible for the program to lie to John about his secret admirer, only to pull the rug out from under him on air. The exploitation didn't stop with the Jenny Jones show either. Warner Brothers, the same company that distributed the show, also owned Court TV. That meant the same organization directly profited from the coverage of the tragedy after the fact too. Hours of airtime were devoted to examining and re-examining the role of Jenny Jones in the murder on multiple networks. The coverage reached a fever pitch after the Amador family announced they were filing a civil suit against the Jenny Jones show. Daytime TV was going to court. The suit was a wrongful death action that claimed Scott's murder was a direct result of his appearance on The Jenny Jones Show with John. 
The Amador family argued the show had ambushed John on air, intentionally withheld information about his secret admirer beforehand, and failed to properly vet him as a guest. Though the Schmitzes supported the attempts to hold Jenny Jones accountable, John wasn't included in the civil proceedings as part of a previous agreement. But even without John's participation, the Amador's claims seemed difficult to argue with. The producers had repeatedly told John his secret crush was either a man or a woman, but they knew it wasn't a woman. And John repeatedly informed them he wasn't interested in being on the show at all if his admirer was a man. Whether or not they had malicious intent, no one on the show's staff seemed to care if John was embarrassed. But the most important accusations from the Amador family were more controversial. Their suit also claimed the Jenny Jones show should have known an episode about same-sex crushes would lead to violence. Essentially, they said the show willfully put Scott in unreasonable danger. These claims were more contentious, but there is a strong connection between shameful emotions and murder. In fact, according to Dr. James Gilligan, humiliation is the most powerful psychological stimulus for violence. Even more often than frustration or rage, shame can lead to aggression. And the Jenny Jones show created an environment that cultivated and intensified those feelings, all for TV ratings. The focus on ratings and therefore profit was a key point for the prosecuting attorney, Jeffrey Feiger. He, along with Frank Amador, saw the Jenny Jones show as a money-making machine that left mountains of collateral damage in its wake. They felt the program intentionally harmed its guests to get a reaction out of them. Frank described it as, quote, experimenting on people for ratings. Those kinds of bold claims kept the story of the talk show murderer and the headlines for years. The civil suit didn't make it to trial until March 31, 1999. But four years after the shooting, the public interest in the case was still rabid. And in a trial about the role of the media in crime, prosecuting attorney Jeffrey Feiger knew he should keep the press talking. Viger made the rounds on any show or news network that would have him, fiercely attacking the Jenny Jones show and every program like it. He called them trash TV and ambush television. He painted them as only concerned with profit, not people. To Viger, there was nothing lower than a person who knowingly exploited others just for a laugh and some cash but he still had to convince a jury, which meant he had to put Jones and other producers in the hot seat. When it came time for the show's staff to finally take the stand, they didn't come off very well. That was largely due to Feiger's combative questioning style. His cross-examinations were aggressive, but they accomplished the goal of putting his targets on the defensive. And often, that's enough. In 2011, Lawyer Kenneth Nolan wrote an article about the essentials of cross-examination for the magazine, Litigation. Nolan stressed that attorneys should have a clear goal when questioning witnesses. They shouldn't be asking questions they don't already know the answer to, and they should always be prepared for their responses. Feiger worked using exactly the strategy. He started by needling the staff about what they looked for in a prospective guest, 
He wasn't shy about showing open contempt for the staff. He even accused one producer of making up everything he said on the stand. He wanted to get a negative reaction out of them and put them off balance. After all, in his opinion, that was exactly what Jones and the producers did to their guests. He argued the entire premise of the show was to embarrass, hurt, and exploit people for entertainment. And Feiger made sure that point stayed on the jury's mind. In his opinion, it perfectly explained the scandalous topics Jenny Jones centered its episodes around. Besides the secret crushes divulged during the Scott Amador taping, Jones also frequently encouraged her audience to mock her guests and put them down. In one episode, spectators lined up to insult a woman's weight while she sat on stage in a revealing outfit. Those insults even made it on Jones's Best of the Year program. A similar dynamic was at the center of the show's regular makeover segments. People who dressed in punk, goth, or biker clothing were invited on the show just to be publicly ridiculed. Once the audience had their fill of making fun of the people on stage, the guests were cleaned up and brought out in more conventional outfits. While occasionally the show captured positive or uplifting reactions, all too often they devolved into petty squabbles and vicious mockery. It was easy to come to the conclusion that the segments were designed that way. The show manufactured drama and the more over the top, the better. While it may have simply been for entertainment, real people got hurt. However, the producers of the show disagreed. They adamantly denied the accusations. They didn't feel they lied to Jonathan Schmitz about his secret crush. According to them, it was just supposed to be a lighthearted surprise, not a malicious deception. But the harder Feiger pushed, the more tense the atmosphere grew. At one point, Feiger asked a producer if the show had taught them how people reacted to embarrassment. The producer answered no, claiming the show didn't hurt, embarrass, or humiliate people at all. It came off as a brazen overstatement, considering they were on trial for an episode that led to a man's murder. It seemed naive to argue the show had never crossed any lines. With the groundwork established, the prosecution moved on to John Schmidt's and Scott Amador's taping. In particular, Viger focused on the moment toward the beginning of the segment, when Scott was prodded until he described his sexual fantasies about John. Viger's points was that those kinds of questions had no intent but to humiliate. It was hard to believe that leading anyone in that kind of lurid direction could end any way other than awkward embarrassment. Yet again, the producers denied that was their intention, but floundered when pressed. One of them, Karen Campbell, first claimed she only asked potential guests about their sexual fantasies if the guest brought them up first. She later walked the statement back, clarifying that she often did ask about their fantasies completely unprompted. How could she not? That kind of thing was prime daytime material. Feiger was clearly out to make the show's staff look untrustworthy, and for many, he succeeded. Though plenty of people still believe the show shouldn't be held accountable for the murder, no one could deny things looked bad on the stand. But the lowest point for the Jenny Jones show was yet to come when they heard from the host herself. 
coming up. The producers fumble and Jenny Jones takes the stand. Now, back to the story. On April 1st, 1999, the Amador family sued The Jenny Jones Show, along with its distributor, Warner Brothers. In the civil suit, the family argued the show had put Scott Amador in danger by intentionally humiliating his killer, Jonathan Schmitz, on air. For their part, the defense attempted to demonstrate that the taping had not led directly to Scott Amador's death. And in the middle of the trial, new accounts emerged to bolster their argument. Two of the producers, Karen Campbell and Rob Muchanti, claimed Scott Amador had called the Jenny Jones show on the morning after the taping. Rob stated that Scott told him he and John hooked up the previous night as a result of the TV confession. Allegedly, Scott and John had slow danced and kissed. Karen didn't claim to have heard the story directly from Scott, but did testify Rob told her about the call right after he hung up. It was a jaw-dropping claim that contradicted so much of what people thought they knew about the murder. While there had always been rumors Scott and John were romantically involved, no one had ever heard it directly from either party, and the people closest to both men had always denied they were anything more than friends. But what was most shocking was the timing. It had been four years since the shooting, John's criminal trial was long over, and despite all the press coverage and police questioning, this anecdote had never before seen the light of day. Attorney Jeffrey Feiger didn't try to hide his surprise. He pressed Karen on why she'd never revealed the story to authorities or anyone else. Jenny Jones had even written a book on her experience during the criminal trial, but she never mentioned any post-show conversations with Scott. Karen's explanation was simple. No one had ever asked her directly if Scott had contacted the show following the taping. She stuck to the story despite the prosecution's repeated attempts to press her for more information. Feiger felt if her story was true, she or Rob should have volunteered the information to police to assist with their investigation. However, Karen and Rob insisted under oath that the call did take place. It's impossible to know whether that's true, but there's no record or evidence aside from the witness statements. So far, it seemed like Viger and the Amadors had some momentum behind them, but their biggest battle was yet to come. At long last, Jenny Jones was called to testify. The proceedings had been a media circus from the start, but nothing turned up the drama more than the appearance of Jones herself on April 5th. Nearly 500,000 viewers tuned in to watch on court TV. Jones began her testimony with an upbeat confidence. She insisted that her role in the show wasn't to think about ratings. She wasn't out to use people. And she didn't think the idea of asking about a guest's sexual fantasies was too embarrassing or over the line. People always had the right not to answer her questions or to refuse to come on the show altogether. On her first day of testimony, she didn't seem to crack under the cross-examination the way some of the other witnesses had. In fact, many people came away with a positive impression of Jones. 
Her experience as a comedian and comfort in the spotlight allowed her to parry Figer's pointed questions. Her lighthearted attitude didn't win over everyone, but for many, it was a breath of fresh air. However, her second day on the stand didn't go as smoothly. Figer started with a gotcha question, asking Jones if she knew she was smiling while on the stand. She had to admit that she wasn't comfortable, but sometimes she grinned anyway. Figer compared it to the way Jonathan Schmitz had smiled on her show. In legal terms, the quip wasn't exactly proof, but it did undermine an important component of the defense's argument. Over and over, the show staff insisted no one could have known John was uncomfortable at the taping. They pointed to his smile and friendly attitude on stage as evidence. However, just because John smiled for the camera didn't mean he was happy. Most people are familiar with the concept of nervous laughter, and psychologically, this same concept applies to all positive expressions of emotion. Smiling can actually relieve anxiety, and researchers believe these types of unconventional emotional responses can help regulate stress. Pointing out Jenny Jones's nervous smile on the stand finally succeeded in putting her on the defensive. After a few more minutes of questioning from Figer, she sounded just as suspicious as her producers. So he pushed her harder. He capitalized on the way she typically downplayed her own role in the case. Jones had a tendency to push responsibility onto others or the show itself. At some points, it almost sounded as though Jenny Jones had no control or input in her own show. Whether or not that was true, to the average person, it seemed unbelievable. Feiger also got her to admit that the program didn't bother to get permission from its guests to air their sexual fantasies. Jones tried to argue back, but sounded as though she was on shaky ground. It was a tense final act for the proceedings. Following Jenny's testimony, the lawyers gave their closing arguments. The Amadors and Feiger appealed to the jury's emotions. They asked them to punish the rich Hollywood machine they believed had exploited Scott Amador. The show's attorneys, meanwhile, largely stuck to technical definitions. In their eyes, it was an open and shut case. It didn't meet the standard for legal negligence. There was no reliable way the producers could have anticipated the violence, and it wasn't illegal to ask Jonathan Schmitz to appear on the show. They argued they couldn't possibly have predicted what would happen next? As the civil trial came to an end in May 1999, no one knew quite what to expect. Most legal experts believed Warner Brothers would come out on top. They had a legal army behind them, and awarding a judgment in the case could potentially have massive ripple effects. If the Amador succeeded, the entire daytime TV industry might be in danger. On the other hand, there were points when the defense struggled to get the better of Viker. Throughout the proceedings, there was a distinct feeling that something was off. Everyone seemed to be performing in some way, so it came down to whose performances you believed. And in the end, that was what mattered. The jury found in favor of the Amadors, awarding them over $29 million. It was a tremendous shock and an unlikely victory for the Amadors. News pundits and TV hosts everywhere reeled. 
People speculated that so-called trash TV would be gone for good, soon. Others worried the implications would affect journalistic sources and a wide range of media fields would be caught in the crossfire. The television world seemed to be on the precipice of a major upset. But the mood didn't last. The Amador family never saw a dime of that money. Warner Brothers appealed the case and successfully got the judgment overturned three years later. The Michigan Court of Appeals disagreed that the show had a responsibility for its guests after the fact. The court wrote, quote, Defendants in this case had no duty to anticipate and prevent the act of murder committed by Schmitz three days after leaving defendant's studio and hundreds of miles away. Warner Brothers called the judgment an important victory. The result was no doubt disappointing for the Amador family, but they'd always known they were fighting an uphill battle. To them, the point of the civil trial was to get their message out there and send a message to the networks. People's lives aren't just fodder for entertainment and should be treated with respect. Ultimately, the controversy didn't get rid of exploitative daytime talk shows. Jenny Jones ran until 2003. Similar shows like Jerry Springer stuck around even longer. Springer was on the air until 2018. Yet in time, the fad ran its course. Nowadays, daytime TV is a more varied environment and there is far less ambush television. In a way, the format has become an outdated relic, symbolic of the 90s. And while Jenny Jones remained popular for years, she has since retreated from public life. Her once recognizable name has faded to obscurity. Jonathan Schmitz has also retreated from the spotlight. Since his trial, he's made few public statements. In 2017, he was released from prison at the age of 47 for good behavior. He served just 21 years. After the announcement, Frank Amador told news outlets he was uncomfortable with John's release. It marked one of the few times he'd spoken to the media in decades. At a certain point, he and his family had soured on the publicity. Back in 1995, they thought they could help Scott by getting his story out there. They hoped that they could overcome the public's misconception and use the media to their advantage. Now, they have a different view. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with another episode. For more information on Scott Amador and Jonathan Schmitz, amongst the many sources we used, we found the documentary series, Trial by Media, to be helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Terrell Wells, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, fact-checking by Haley Milligan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. You aren't supposed to know about them, unless they want you to.
powerful groups with their own very specific agendas. And if you find yourself on the inside, good luck getting out. Hi, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Join us every Tuesday for our new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. Whether it's doomsday predictions, deadly greed or world domination, each week we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.